This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Tom Gilovich. He is a professor of psychology at Cornell University. And I have to say, he is a person who has had over the years tremendous influence on my career, uh, although admittedly unknowingly. Uh, I began in this industry as a trader, and I was frequently perplexed and fascinated by why the people on the desk around me were doing either poorly or well any given day, week, month. And I, I eventually figured out it wasn't that one guy was smarter than another or someone had more knowledge. It was their own behavior that led to their success or failures. And so I started hunting for some information about why people made certain behavioral decisions that they did. Uh, I ended up tracking down a book of his uh, from 1991, How We Know What Isn't So, and that pretty much sent me down the rabbit hole of behavioral economics, which has been a tremendous asset to me, uh, both in the world of finance and media, understanding what motivates people to make either good or bad decisions with their money uh, is a tremendous asset, both what you should be doing with your money and what you should be advising other people to do with their money. Uh, This is, to me, one of the more fascinating conversations uh, that you'll hear if you are at all interested in fill in the blank, psychology, behavioral economics, heuristics, biases, Etc. I could have gone on for another three hours with him. I barely got to scratch the surface uh, of all my questions. With no further ado, my conversation with Tom Gilovich. I have an extra special guest this week, and his name is Professor Thomas Gilovich. He is a professor of psychology at Cornell University. He has published numerous peer-reviewed works on cognition and heuristics, and is among the most cited uh, academics in the field working on behavioral psychology and economics. His work has debunked the idea of the hot hand in basketball, the spotlight effect, the bias blindsight, clustering illusion, and numerous other cognitive issues are in his purview. He is the author of numerous books, including a textbook, on heuristics and biases. Uh, He is the co-author of Why Smart People Make Big Bunny Mistakes and What You Can Do to Correct Them. I became familiar with his work, How We Know What Isn't So, The Fallibility of Human Reason in Everyday Life. It was one of the first popular books on behavioral economics and one that I found incredibly influential. Thomas Gilovich, welcome to Bloomberg. Happy to be here. Let's start out with how we know what isn't so. You begin the book with a quote from Artemis Ward. It ain't the things we don't know that get us into trouble. It's the things we know that just ain't so. Tell us about that. Well, um, if we are convinced of things that aren't true, we're going to go down certain paths that aren't going to be productive. And uh, that quote Uh, captures that idea very well. And what I like about that quote is that most people uh, attribute it to Mark Twain uh, or Will Rogers. And uh, the source, I thought at the time, uh, was Artemis Ward. And maybe two years after the publication of the book, uh, a reader wrote to me and said, 
well, that's really interesting. You're sort of telling everyone they got it wrong with uh, Will Rogers and Mark Twain. But in fact, it goes back even earlier than Artemis Ward to uh, someone named Josh Billings that I hadn't heard of. So uh, it's kind of ironic uh, starting off a book on illusion and air to the very first sentence of the book contains a, a citation air, at least. But the, that citation error did not lead you down a path filled with errors. Let's discuss a little bit about the things that you discovered uh, and published in the book. And we'll begin with a very simple question. What are heuristics and biases? Well, the bias part is quite easy. It's a term that people are familiar with when there's a systematic departure between um, uh, a belief that you have and reality or a tendency to choose to veer in one direction when uh, you should be veering in, in another direction. So it's a systematic departure from uh, reality or the best assessment of reality. Heuristics, that's a little more complicated for most folks. Um, it's generally defined in the behavioral economics uh, world as a, a rough approximation, a seat of the pants. Uh, rule of way, thumb? Rule of thumbs, another way of describing it, yes. And why do these heuristics lead people down the wrong path? Uh, because they're, they generally work pretty well. In one of the earliest examples used uh, and applied to psychology uh, was uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's examples of we use the clarity of, the, of an image as a cue for how far away it is. The farther things are, uh, the harder it is to see them clearly so they will seem more indistinct. Uh, and that generally works pretty well. Mm -hmm. We're able to see whether something's very far away or relatively close up. But on a hazy day, that's going to make things seem farther away than they really are. Um, and conversely, on a spectacularly clear day, you often have the reaction of, whoa, those mountains are, I didn't realize they were that close. <laughs> Let's use another example of, of some biases. You're online in the supermarket, and your line doesn't seem to be moving. And the line next to you really looks like it's flying. Are you waiting for a toll booth? I know parts of the country still have toll booths. Um, and you switch lines, and suddenly the line you're on comes to a, a dead halt, and the line you just left seems to be moving. What is it about our life experience that causes that illusion, or is it an illusion? Um, that one, as far as the grocery lines, I don't know if anyone has formally studied it, but uh, you have to ask what principle of the universe would there be that would systematically uh, distort things such that whenever you move to a line, it would slow down and the line that you were in suddenly sped up. Uh, but it's easy to explain why people would believe that, even if it's not true. That is to say, uh, those times when you stay in your overly busy line, you're tempted to move to another one. Um, and it turns out that, that you can see that that would have been a better thing. Your line stays slow. You could see people speeding through the other line. That bothers you, but you get over it. If, on the other hand, you make the opposite mistake, you switch to the seemingly speedy line and it slows down, the line you were in suddenly speeds up, 
you're going to kick yourself and say, wow, why did I do that? I was in the right line. I brought this on myself, and it's more annoying. And because it's more annoying, it's more memorable. And therefore, uh, you're going to have a distorted sense in your head of how common it is. Um, very much like uh, there's a belief in the sports world, the baseball world, that if your team, your pitcher has a no-hitter in progress, don't comment on it. And that's partly fed by the idea that if your pitcher does have a no-hitter and you say, whoa, we've got a no-hitter going, this is great, and then they lose it, you draw an association between those two and those are going to stand out and you're going to think that it's uh, what you've done has played some determinative role, which it, of course, hasn't. So, so let's talk a little bit about mean reversion. Very often when we see things that are outliers to the upside or the downside, we're sort of surprised when the next item in that series is not as extreme, be it how fast the line is moving or how easily a no-hitter uh, is lost and goes back to normal issues. Why do people have such a hard time with mean reversion? That's a great question, and there are a number <laughs> of things that contribute to uh, this belief, the failure to recognize the fact that um, regression to the mean is happening. Um, and one of them is that uh, is the same story that I've described before, which is uh, when it reverts, um, and particularly when it reverts after you've done something, that that stands out in your memory more and distorts your the intuitive database that you have in your head. And so uh, there are a lot of superstitions that are essentially a failure to recognize the operation of regression, the Sports Illustrated jinx being one of them, that uh, it's believed that if you get your picture on the cover of Sports Illustrated, that that's bad luck. Um, and it doesn't take that much insight to recognize that really is a mean aversion account. That is, you only get your picture on the cover of Sports Illustrated if you've had a run of success. And uh, extraordinary success at time one is going to be followed not by abject failure, but by somewhat less extreme uh, a run of success afterwards. So you're right there on the peak. On average, uh, people are going to do less well the next time, and that gives rise to this belief that um, it's bad luck to be pictured on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine. And people, athletes truly believe it. Some of them have turned down the opportunity to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated simply because they thought it was bad luck. Let's talk a little bit about the hot hands in basketball. You first wrote about this effect with Amos Tversky, is it about 30 years ago? Is that right? Yes. Paper came out in 1985. So, so tell us what your studies found and how you went about proving that the hot hand wasn't everything it appeared to be. Uh, the, the belief in the hot hand is just one of the most powerful and firmly held beliefs that we have. Uh, if you've ever played or watched the game of basketball, it just seems like people get on these streaks where they can do no wrong. And I am in the zone. Absolutely. And it's incredibly compelling that you've made a few shots. The game just seems easier. It seems like you don't even have to attend to the basket as much as normal, and it just goes in. It's absolutely compelling. Michael Jordan used to say there are times when the rim looks bigger. Yep, absolutely. Um, and 
we wondered whether uh, there was less to that belief than uh, basketball players uh, think. Um, we're not. It was. We don't want to challenge uh, the feeling. There's no question that when you've done well, you feel different, mm -hmm. uh, differently, and when you've done poorly, you feel differently. The the basket seems to have shrunk. It seems like the best aim shot is going to go partly in the cylinder and pop right out. Um, no questioning that. But the belief in the hot hand is really a three-link chain. Previous performance affects how you feel. How you feel affects subsequent performance. And we were interested in the link between the second and third. And the, the thought was that we exaggerate that for many of the same uh, psychological principles we've already talked about. Um, and when we tested it, uh, the, our hypothesis was that people are going to exaggerate how much heat there is, how much streakiness there is in performance. And when we did the analyses, turned out there was no connection between link two and three. That is, how you feel doesn't seem to influence how uh, you perform in the future, at least at the professional level. So let, and, let's be really precise with that. When you say there is no link, there's not even a slight improvement. Hey, I'm loose, I'm hitting shots, I'm feeling good. Each subsequent basket, what is the correlation with the future success, whether I made a few in a row or I missed a few in yeah. a row? Um, two things are important there. One is um, there may be some ways in which you've experienced some success, you feel different, and it might influence your future behavior that we haven't studied. We put aside from the hot hand idea, which is I've done well. Maybe I'm a more energetic player. I play better defense. I get more rebounds. We don't know about that. And that may be true. What we did look at, do you become a better shooter? Not do you take more shots. You may, you probably do take more shots because you're feeling hot. The question is, are you more likely to make a shot um, after having succeeded in the past versus after having failed? And the data show, and this remains you know, controversial. For 30 years, there's been back and forth. Uh, all the challenges to it for decades have not stood up. There's a recent challenge that's among the more interesting ones, so I have to say it remains controversial. Our original hypothesis um, isn't controversial. That is to say, um, people wildly overestimate uh, the extent to which people are hot or how streaky people are. Whether there's any sort of carryover, that remains uh, a bit controversial. So some of the pushback has been, you know, a player gets hot and the defense collapses on, on them and they have less good looks at the basket. And so naturally, after a certain streak, they're going to start missing. But you don't have that same defensive pressure with foul shooting, do you? That's right. And, and what does the data show with that? The data show that the outcome of the second free throw is completely independent of the out, uh, outcome of the first. Totally. Uh, so if you sing, hit or miss the first one, the outcome of the second one is statistically no different. Right. And a lot of basketball um, players and fans will say, well, I'm not so impressed by that because you can't really be streaky when it comes to free throws. Now, they say that after the fact. but uh, <laughs> I mean, you're we, standing there. Nobody's guarding you. Right. There are certain uh, – think of Reggie Miller of the Indiana Pacers. used to shoot like 93% free throws. He was an outstanding free throw Absolutely. shooter. Why would people not assume – if there's a streak when you're on the on the court, why would you not assume there's a streak at the foul line? 
I think they say that after having seen the data um, <laughs> and they want to maintain that belief. But uh, we went a step further and we conducted, um, and other people have done this too, where um, you have people shoot in the gym for you. And the, the feeling uh, for all of us who've played basketball is you can feel it in warm-up sometime. It doesn't have to be in the heat of the game that you can feel hot. And uh, we have people take a series of shots along an arc an mm -hmm. equidistance from the basket. And uh, before each shot, they place a bet on themselves, uh, take a risky bet if they're feeling hot or a more conservative bet if they are not feeling so hot. And it turns out we can predict the bets they're going to make. That is, if they've made several shots in a row, that is a very strong predictor of whether they're going to choose the risky bet or not. However, the bets that they choose are not very good predictors of what's going to happen next. Again, this three-link chain. No problem between the first and the second. How you've done influences how you feel. But surprisingly, how you feel has um, either no or very little impact on your likelihood of making the next shot. And again, I want to stress, it has to do with your ability to, as they now say, score the basketball, get the ball in the cylinder. It may affect you in other ways, it may make you a better defender, better passer, or whatever. So uh, about a year and a half ago, I read the book by Michael Lewis, The Undoing Project, about yes. Danny Kahneman and Amos, Amos Tversky. You wrote the hot hand paper with Amos Tversky. What was it like working with him? I mean, it was uh, uh, certainly a highlight of my career, and subsequently I had the great opportunity to have worked with Danny Kahneman as well. Um, and Amos was brilliant as you know as as comes across in the undoing project and one of the things that i most liked about uh working with him one of the great lessons and this applies equally as well to kahneman um they're both brilliant and it's fun to be in close proximity to brilliance but that's not enough both of these guys were incredibly hardworking and detailed oriented and one of the things i learned from uh amos it's kind of similar to this uh, saying people have about golf that, you know, you drive for show and you putt for dough. Uh -huh. um, that, uh, you know, when we were basically done with our hot hand paper, in fact, as a young person, I thought we were done. He would several times, Tom, come in here. I've moved this sentence around here and I've changed this word. And I, the thought was, the lesson was, if someone of his stature is really sweating the details right here at the very end, just making the paper a little better in these marginal ways, I can do that too. And it's just been a very helpful lesson. You're never really done. Things can always be made better. And uh, both Kahneman and Tversky are, you know, they, they're, they're into what they're doing, passionately care about it, and it shows in their ability to throw themselves into it. And there's, there's no, uh, being brilliant's great, and both of them are, but to get to their level, you also have to have a great capacity for hard work and a great enthusiasm for what you're doing, which both of them did do. Br brilliance is necessary, but not sufficient. Yes. Yeah, well said. Let's talk a little bit about some of your research on uh, happiness and how to either get happy or avoid unhappiness. Let's begin with a discussion of regret. What is it that people regret more, the things they do or the things that they decide not to do? I think one thing that's interesting about that question is that it depends upon um, when you're talking about it. 
that uh, in the immediate aftermath of a mistake of action, that just hurts a lot more than uh, omission. And uh, you see that everywhere. It plays out in the example that you started with about the grocery store line, that if mm-hmm. you switch from a slow line to uh, one that's seemingly faster and it slows down and you just kick yourself, I was in a better line, why did I switch? Uh, the example at a university, of course, that I think everyone can relate to is people taking multiple choice tests and you have the common experience of zipping along, oh, this one's B, and then, oh, wait a minute, maybe maybe it's D and you go back and forth. Should I stick with my uh, initial hunch or should I switch to now what I think that it is? Turns out people have studied that and if you face that dilemma, Uh, you're much more likely to get the right answer by switching than staying. Students believe the complete opposite. It's better to go with your initial gut instinct. Hmm. And um, so their belief is incorrect, doesn't fit the the data that's been observed. Um, But it's easy to see why they would believe that. That is, if you thought it was B and then you convince yourself, oh, let me switch to D, you erase it, now you're endorsing B. And it turns out you were right you're going to kick yourself. I had the, uh, I had the right answer. I knew it. You did. Um, so, so short term, the bias against action is uh, a manifestation of regret aversion. We don't want to do something yes. yep. that we ultimately regret. But then how does that play out with the sort of deathbed statements we see from people? I should have done X. Yeah, that's the, that's the interesting part, this change from the close temporal proximity to a distant perspective. And over time, we do things with our, because our mistakes of action are so painful, we do things about them. We make amends to other people. We engage in what psychologists call cognitive dissonance reduction to make ourselves feel better about it. We identify, and part of that is identifying a silver lining. If you ask people about some of their biggest regrets, people will say, oh, I married the wrong person. But they will say, yeah, that was a mistake, but I wouldn't have these great kids if I hadn't done that. So the marriage ended, but uh, it turned out to have been a good thing because I have these kids that I love. Um, And so there's all this mental stuff you do to make yourself more comfortable with many, at least, mistakes of action. Whereas things that you didn't do, rather than shrinking over time, they often grow. You often think, oh, you know, if I'd only taken that class, I would have gone into this profession rather than this one. And and you imagine all the great things that could have happened. So over time, regrets of inaction either don't shrink like the action ones do, or they even grow over time. And so you, as you said, on people's deathbeds, they... um, um, regret more of the things that they didn't do. I could have been a contender. I, you know, I could have been this. I could have been that. So, so actions uh, become rationalized and we learn to deal with our mistakes, but inactions blow up in our minds to become these mythic if only. Yep. So yeah. let's talk about something sort of related to that. You've, you've created a little bit of a stir not too long ago expressing uh, the belief that you know, we're a consumer society and everybody wants the 2.3 kids and the four-bedroom house and the convertible car and the boat or what have you, but your conclusion is experiences are more valuable to individuals than these 
uh, baubles and goods. I- explain how you came to that conclusion and what it means. That uh, line of research uh, stemmed from a finding, probably the biggest finding in the now quite extensive research on happiness or well-being, uh, which is that we have a remarkable capacity to adapt to things. And that's a good capacity when bad things happen to us. Uh, oh, no, I've lost my job. Uh, life's going to fall apart. Well, that is a bad thing, and you are miserable for a while, but we tend to adapt to it. Or many people think, oh, I don't think I'd even want to live if I lost the use of my legs, let's say. Well, it turns out that people who've experienced that, yes, they are miserable right away, but they adapt and live lives that are as fulfilling uh, as people who haven't had that misfortune. Um, And this is just the probably biggest fact uh, about the study of happiness. And so it applying it to consumption, the things that we buy, you know, if I trade in my Camry and get a Lexus, I'll be happier. Yeah, that's true. You will be for a little while. Pretty soon it's just a card like the other car and you don't notice it as much. And so one challenge for happiness researchers is um, if adaptation is an enemy of happiness, how do you combat that enemy? And the great judgment and decision-making researcher Robin Dawes had a thought experiment where he was talking about this hedonic treadmill. I need Mm -hmm. more and more to get the same level of happiness. He said, uh, imagine you devoted your life not to selfish pursuits, accumulating more, but selfless ones. You were just trying to do good in the world. I don't, you know, I don't know if he used, I think he did use the Mother Teresa example. Uh Um, Mother Teresa saves five people this week. She probably isn't the next week going, eh, five people, that doesn't cut it. I need to save more. I need to save more. (laughs) And it's a compelling thought experiment. And it seemed like um, those kinds of experiences, at least, weren't subject to this adaptation, this hedonic treadmill. And so the question became, how broadly does that apply to experiences? And the hypothesis was, you don't adapt to the money that you spend, the the pleasure that you get out of your experiences, uh, you don't adapt to them as much, which in some ways is paradoxical. That is, most people have limited resources, and people often say, you know, I know I would love a vacation right now, but uh, we really need a new set of bookcases, or we need a new bed, or we need a new car, or whatever. And at least that will always be there, and that's true in a material sense. But psychologically, it's the reverse. You adapt to the new bookcase. You adapt to the upgrade in your car, the things that you buy. And it turns out you don't adapt as much to your experiences. Your experiences change who you are, and you're a changed person, and you continue to uh, benefit from that. Your experiences connect you to other people in ways that your uh, material goods don't, and that continues to be a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, And so it turns out, uh, and now a lot of research has shown this, that uh, even though the experience comes and goes, possibly in a flash, uh, it lives on psychologically and provides more enduring satisfaction and enjoyment. How much of the material issues are based on the very natural tendency of us to not be very good at predicting our own future happiness or our own future emotional state? It seems we build up these things we want, be it a house, a car, whatever, and then when we actually get it, 
it disappoints our expectations of this grand change of lifestyle. Well, I, you've identified a very interesting line of research. Of uh, It would seem like one of the easiest things to predict would be how happy we're going to be making predictions about ourselves. Predicting the world, of course, is hard, but it would seem to be easy to predict uh, how we're going to react. And I think it's uh, just a very compelling uh, line of research that now many investigators have done showing that nah, we're not so good prognosticators about our own enjoyment. And one of the examples that I most like in this area is that uh, people feel like, I'll be happier if I have a bigger house. And when you first move into it, you will be happier, again, before you adapt to this new amount of space. And uh, that becomes the norm, this bigger house. And now you feel like you need even more and more. Anyway, t in order to afford that bigger house, people often have to live farther away from their job and they have a longer commute. And one of the exceptions in this tendency that I described, this remarkable capacity for adaptation, is that people don't tend to adapt to the trauma of a long commute. And uh, it's not surprising why that would be the case. That is, it's a uh, it's, uh, amorphous, highly variable thing. It's a different version of hell each time you're driving. Sometimes it's a <laughs> snarl over here. Other times it's a nasty motorist there. It's different, but and you don't adapt to it. And so you've made this terrible trade-off. You think you're going to be happier with the bigger house. You get the bigger house. You are happy for a while. Then you adapt to it. You're saddled with this long commute to which you don't adapt. And so you've lost out in the bargain. So here's a quote from one of your books. People do not hold questionable beliefs because they have not been exposed to the relevant evidence. Why do they hold questionable beliefs? Well, for a variety of reasons, and, and the, that's what the book was about, was exploring um, those different reasons. Um, and one is that the world doesn't play fair. That is, it doesn't, it's not, uh, doesn't, put you through a series of controlled experiments. Um, it highlights certain data and says, hey, look at me, and puts other data in the shadows. And uh, as a result of that, the database we have in our head is going to be somewhat biased. And we've already talked about a few examples of that. That is to say, when you switch lines and it slows down, that's going to leave more of an impression than when you switch lines and it uh, speeds up, and that's going to distort uh, your database. Um, Cornell University, when it decides who gets to go there, it probably congratulates itself because we look around at the student body and they're terrific. And we say, boy, we're really good at selecting people. Now, of course, we don't really know that because we don't know about the people who we've rejected who could be there and maybe they do just as well. That is, people self-select them. Only really good students, by and large, are even applying to Cornell, and maybe we don't do as good a job as we think. The world can't show us the people that we didn't accept, and therefore it's um, hard to really know whether we're doing a good job, but the impression is every bit, it, it's there. We look around at the student body, you can't turn that impression off, and the students look great, and so we think we did a good job. You once called confirmation bias the mother of all biases. Tell us why. 
Um, boy, that's a term that has been in the news uh, all over lately. And <laughs> I wonder uh, what. There, are, there are many things uh, that people mean by the subject confirmation bias. So let me break that down yeah, to yeah. three things because there is some nuance in, in confirmation bias and, and in the academic study of that. So I think what most people think of when they think of confirmation bias if we're talking about Facebook and fake news, people go out seeking things that confirm existing beliefs. That That's a broad definition of confirmation bias. But in some of your research and some of your studies, I was kind of fascinated by this. When people are presented with a problem, rather than seeking disproving evidence, they go out and seek confirming evidence, even though you can end up with the exact wrong answer or the same answer, regardless of the question, based on how it is. The example in one of the books is you have a court that has to decide which parent to award custody of a child to. Parent A is pretty much average across all the major characteristics the court looks at. Parent B has some very high points and some very low points. Depending on how the question is phrased, which parent should be awarded custody, which parent should not be awarded custody— Everybody ends up looking at the parent with the high points and low points because it's confirming whatever the question is asking. Is that what you were referring to, the more nuanced aspect yeah, of confirmation Yeah, Barry, that's advice? great that you broke it down that way. That is to say, um, people are very familiar with the idea that we're easier on evidence that supports what we want to believe, and we're hard on evidence that uh, rebuts what we want to believe, and that's now part of the confirmation bias. That's a thing. We recognize that. Great. People are also aware of the fact that um, if I want something to be true, I actively go out and look for evidence consistent with it. If I want something not to be true, I'll go actively look for evidence that's inconsistent with it. We can call that the confirmation mm -hmm. bias. That's true. There's evidence to support that. But the confirmation bias is even more insidious, more pervasive than that. That is, even if you don't care about what the um, the situation or question, what the ant, what what the right answer might be, like should you award custody to this person or that person, we still engage in this. One example that I think makes this clear is um, suppose. I'm hosting a dinner party, and I tell you, you're going to be sitting next to John. I think John's politically conservative. You just might want to, but you might want to test that out. I'm not sure. How would you test that out? Well, you would ask conservative-oriented questions. You would say, John, don't you think the government is too intrusive sometimes? And then he, as a conservative, would say yes. But even a liberal would say, well, sometimes, sure, the government's too uh, intrusive. If I told you, hey, you're going to be sitting next to John, I think he's politically liberal, you might want to check that out. You might ask a very different question. John, don't you think we need to do something about global warming? Don't you think we need to do something about income inequality? And if he's liberal, he'll say yes. But if you're a conservative, at least when it comes to income inequality, you're going to say, yeah, we need to do things about it. It might be different things than a liberal, but the thrust is you're going to get answers that support what you initially believed. Um, and it's so 
All of this is to say that the confirmation bias runs really deep. And one of my favorite examples of this is an old study of Kahneman Tversky's, excuse me, of Amos Tversky's, who uh, this was before he was interested in the kind of judgmental biases that economists have become interested in. He was just interested in judgments of similarity. How do we say that, why do we say that um, um, having a kid is a little bit like having a dog, but having a dog is nothing like having a kid. Uh, you know, why that discrepancy? Why is North Korea a lot like China, but China's not really much like North Korea? And so he did this study where he asked people, which two countries, this was in the 1980s, are more similar to one another, East Germany and West Germany, or Ceylon and Nepal? The respondents know more about East Germany and West Germany, so they can think of more reasons more ways in which they're similar. And so they say East Germany and West Germany is more similar. Okay, no big deal there. No one's made a problem. No one's made an error. Um, he asked another group of participants, which two countries are more dissimilar to one another, East Germany and West Germany? And they say East Germany and West Germany are more dissimilar to one another because they know more about East Germany and West Germany. They can think of ways in which they are different. And you end up with the paradoxical result with uh, East Germany and West Germany being both more similar and more dissimilar. Logically impossible, but psychologically, the rules of similarity and dissimilarity judgments are such that both can seem very compelling. And it's the confirmation bias. You ask me how similar they are, I look for evidence of similarity, and I can find it for the countries I know more about than the countries I know less about. You ask me which two countries are more dissimilar, I'm looking for evidence of dissimilarity. I don't care which two countries are more right. similar or dissimilar. just shows you how deep the confirmation bias runs. So there was a, a slip of the tongue that you referenced where you said somebody said, I'll see it when I believe it, as opposed to saying I believe <laughs> yeah. it when I see it. Yeah. But really, there's some Freudian truth in that. I'll see it when I believe it tells us how much our own um, ownership of ideas and desire to see things we already believe actually impacts that. How does this manifest itself in the field of investing? How do you see confirmation bias impacting the way people put capital at risk? Um, well, it plays out there the way it plays out everywhere. That is to say, or let's back up a step that, you know, when you cite that quote, it can sound silly. And in some ways it does sound silly. On the other hand, what job does our brain have? It's to make sense of the world. And we draw upon every possible cues that would make that job easier. And one cue that we draw upon is what we already know or what we already think we know. And therefore, what we know has to influence new information that comes in. And so if we have a strong prior belief that in this industry is better positioned for the environment we now face rather than that industry, of course we should take that into account. Pre-existing beliefs, uh, if they're based on a solid foundation, they should influence our evaluation of new information. So let me ask you um, a question about the money illusion. Why is it that we have these unfounded beliefs about values of different things Define what the money illusion is. The money illusion is really interesting um, to psychologists because it's another version of uh, something you see all over the place, which is uh, a difficulty we have in taking context into account. Uh, 
And so in psychology, there's this phenomenon known as the fundamental attribution error, that um, if you see um, a dad and a kid in line at the grocery store and the dad yells at the kid, you can't help but think, that's a mean father. We don't know what the context was that led up to it, uh, what's gone on in the person's life, and how exceptional that might have been the only time that the dad ever yelled at his kid. But we can't help but look at the stimulus in front of us and draw conclusions. Um, and with respect to the money illusion, $20,000 sounds a lot more than $10,000, and we can lose sight of the context, that is to say, how much has inflation changed from when you had 10000 to $20,000? Uh, there are obviously circumstances in, in which, in real dollars, the 20000 is less than the 10000 you used to have. But uh, it's hard to, to get over that first impression of just being taken by the, the monetary value and to ignore context. What is the issue with mental accounting? Well, economists tell us, uh, decision makers tell us, if we want to make the best decisions with our money, we should think of all of our assets and liabilities in terms of one overall integrated balance sheet. And in fact, that turns out to be true. We will make better decisions that way. Great. But those, uh, we don't have the kinds of minds that uh, either are capable of doing that or are inclined to do that. Instead, we put money into different accounts, um, and we treat it differently. We treat money differently depending upon where it came from, how we got it, um, and uh, there are all sorts of examples. It's very easy to illustrate. If you received an inheritance from an aunt, let's say, who was very careful with her money, you're probably going to be more careful with that money than if you're aunt was a wild and crazy person who uh, liked to spread money around, you're going to feel like, I should spread this around. Money comes with almost a, a personality. Huh. Um, and people often talk about this in the context of getting a smallish bonus you didn't expect. You get a tax return and it's small. It feels like, hey, this is great. Let's go spend it. And people do. And they often spend it several times. Uh, <laughs> it's used to justify going to this restaurant you always wanted to go to, getting tickets to the Celtic game or whatever, and you've spent it several times. If, in fact, it were a big inheritance, it comes with a lot of weightiness associated with it. And you're, even though you have more money, you're less likely to spend it on that restaurant or those Celtic tickets and instead um, – uh, do something serious with it because it's a serious amount of money. In uh, Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes, you tell the joke of the honeymooners in Vegas uh, with mental accounting. The groom, while the wife is sleeping, takes $5 and goes down to the roulette table. Share, share that story. I, I love that story. Uh, well, <laughs> do you recall it? I, yeah, of course I recall it. So it's a, it's a long story. Takes the money, goes, you know, bets here, wins, long, Let it ride. Just long keep accumulation up. of uh, money um, that uh, ultimately goes one round too far and loses when he returns. Oh, honey, how did you do? Oh, not bad. I lost $5. Right. The, the last round, mm. it had doubled and doubled mm. and doubled. It was tens of millions of dollars. He had to go to a different hotel that would take the bigger stakes, <laughs> and he bets it, loses it all. Honey, I lost five dollars. Yes, I, I I love that story. I find that, and that you tell it better than I do. <laughs> 
We have been speaking with Professor Tom Gilovich of Cornell University. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things cognitive. Be sure and check out my daily column. You can find that on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. As Tom, I feel odd calling you Tom because I know you as Professor Gilovich Tom. for so many years. Yeah. I only say Thomas when I've made a mis- Thomas when I've made a mistake <laughs> of some hit a backhand into the net. So, so there's a lot of stuff I, I want to go over with you that we didn't get to during the broadcast. But I have to start with the discussion about experiences over consumer. Um, material goods, because there are some stories from that really have stayed with me that have uh, experiences that have stayed with me that have forced me down that rabbit hole a little bit. Uh, About five years ago, my wife and I were on vacation in St. Lucia. And one of the things that was an option at the hotel, we were all the way on the north part of the island and the Grand Tetons are on the south part. And you could rent a sailboat and a crew, a two-man crew, for the day. And at the time, it seemed like an ungodly amount of money. It was less than $1,000, but it's a day. That's a lot of money. And I ended up just grinning my teeth and doing it. And that experience, she still talks about consistently. I could have bought a $1,000 piece of jewelry or spent it on any bauble, would never have gotten the ongoing mileage out of that. And that's my favorite example uh-huh. of that. On the other hand, there are purchases I've made where I continue to derive years later pleasure from the consumer purchase. And my best explanation for that is has to do with my expectations of what I'm going to get. And I'm going to give you two quick examples. Uh, we, we moved houses, and we lived in a fairly suburban neighborhood where you feel like you're the center square Um, with houses next to you, Uh behind you, forward. And we hadn't planned on moving, and this really fascinating modern house popped up. My wife trolls Zillow all the time. And we ended up, it's adjacent to a big preserve. So during, in the winter, I could see the house across the street from me on the other, about 100 yards away. But during the summer, I I feel like I'm living in a forest, and you can't see any neighbors. Uh And, nice. I, and I've only been there three years, but I still walk around and think, I can't believe we live here. I'm astonished by it. That house has not hit the adaptation level yet. But when we were in the old house and I was shopping for new stereo, we were in that house for seven years. My wife was constantly canceling the stereo. No, no, don't spend that money on this. And ultimately said, tell you what, when you move, we moved to a new house one day. Get whatever you want. So we move, and I remind her of this, and go out and spent probably too much money on an audio system. And truth be told, I hardly ever use it. Who has time to pop in a CD 
and sit and listen uninterrupted to music for 45 minutes. It it just doesn't happen. And I'm shocked at how little actual pleasure I've derived from that purchase versus other things, cars and houses and what have you. And it, it it's always intriguing me how adaptable are we to things and how much is it reliant upon our own expectations, whether they're too high or too low? Well, we're doing research. It's interesting that you raise that question. We're doing research right now on people's uh, reasons for making certain purchases and are those reasons borne out? And the particular question is um, we saw in our other research that people will often buy certain material possessions with the thought that that's going to give a boost to their social life. The prototypical example is, yeah, I need to get a 40-inch flat screen TV um, because I want to have everyone over for the Oscars and the Super Bowl. And uh, sometimes that does happen, but people in, end up watching the Oscars by themselves or the Super Bowl by themselves uh, more often than they expect. So the prediction is that you buy certain material things with the expectation it's going to connect you to other people, and that turns out to be true less often than you expect. Whereas the experience th uh, things, some of those you buy also with an eye toward doing it with other people, and those tend to get confirmed more, and that's part of the experiential advantage. Huh. Um, so we have several studies in the hopper ready to run on on that subject. And I think your example of buying this place that you love so much and it hasn't diminished, you right away talked about, oh, we moved to this neighborhood and we're sort of connected to the and like the other people around you. And uh, that's a case where you bought it for a social reason and it turns out to have been confirmed and you've got the, the great hiking ability and Vista in the back. Um, compare that to a frequent motivation of people buying a new house. Oh, we need more square footage or we need three bathrooms rather than two. Well, people with big families used to live in really tiny houses and never really- One bathroom. Know, they, they, yeah, and they function just fine. We could function just fine. And those are the kinds of things that people adapt to. But if you move your house- and suddenly you're in a better neighborhood. That I'm in the is. woods. I'm literally, yeah. you know, there are foxes running down the yeah. street, and we sort of, I live in Long Island. There was not supposed to be deer in Nassau County. A deer went bounding across the front yard the other day. Uh, I was trying to figure out why the dogs were going crazy. Why is there a deer in our street? That It, 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 it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, and those the bigger the, TV you adapt to with three right. months you yep. don't even notice the yep. size of the TV. Whereas for you, it's going to be a fox one day, it's going to be a sunset another day, mm -hmm. a sunrise a third day, etc. It's going to be a different little gift each time that has provided this continuing enjoyment that you've received. I'm curious uh, as to how our, since you've discussed investing and, and monetary issues, financial issues, I'm curious how our own recognition of whether or not we're getting a bargain or not, What whether, you know, uh, there are lots of fast, beautiful cars. I have a hard time wrapping my head around walking into a Ferrari dealer and saying, here's $250,000, I'll take the red one. Seems like an awful lot of money. On the other hand, well, if you pick up a car that's two or three years old and it's half of the new price, it seems like a little more of a rational 
um, decision. I'm curious if you've looked at how people feel about the cost or relative cost of what they're purchasing to its value, if that has any impact on how they either adapt or continue to enjoy whatever that consumer bauble is. Yeah, sure. There's, uh, you know, we get utility from all sorts of things, and there's utility from the simple knowledge that it's a deal. That mm-hmm. that provides pleasure, and that fact is related to, I think, the single biggest psychological fact about human beings. It's so simple. It's such a simple idea, but it's really powerful. Um, says something about us, and um, it's sort of fallen to psychologists to remind the world of this. Economists often want to say that, well, let's just incentivize it, and then we'll get more of this behavior. Incentives work pretty well for things, but people don't respond to the incentives themselves. They respond to the meaning that they assign to Mm -hmm. uh, those incentives. And more broadly, we don't respond to the stimuli we encounter. We uh, respond to the meaning that we assign to them. And there's so much flexibility in terms of how we construe things that um, the same purchase thought of for whatever reason as a deal versus not thought that way, it just it makes all the difference in terms of uh, how much how we feel about it, how much continued enjoyment we get it. Uh, same thing about virtually everything in in our lives uh, and therefore the determinants of understanding how people are going to interpret uh, a given stimulus is the key to understanding how people are going to behave it's the key to running a successful company certainly it's the key to running a successful political campaign so uh, uh, the other issue I wanted to bring up relevant to this was the endowment effect and how people, place more value on things their own. And and we'll stay with cars for a moment. My favorite experience with this is speaking to someone, I get this all the time. Hey, you're a car guy. I'm thinking about buying this or that. The most recent time it was, I'm looking at a, you mentioned a Camry or the Honda Accord. Which which car do you suggest um, I get? And I've learned it's like when someone says, I'm thinking of leaving my wife. What do you think? Whatever answer is going to come back to bite you. So I usually say those are both really good cars. What's your experience with each of them? And I'll get a laundry list of all the great things about the Camry and then all the great things about the Accord. Well, I don't think you could do poorly with either of them. Let me know what you decide. Six months later, you speak to that person. And whichever car they picked, I'm so glad I picked the Accord. It is the greatest thing since... That was, ah, that's a boring plane. This is really, it doesn't matter which one they select, but whichever one they select, that's the, that's the winning car. That's the one they should have picked. It's amazing how what was a coin toss at one point, oh, no, this was the only way the decision could have gone. Yeah, and I think there's an important lesson there. That is, when we find ourselves in these circumstances where, oh, my God, this is a weighty decision, I don't know. Uh, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. Well, if you find yourself where you really are torn and there are strong arguments either way, it's a close call, then just pick one. And (laughs) what you just described, uh, all that psychology that uh, you bring to bear to make you happy with what you've chosen will be brought to bear and you'll be pretty happy with it. Um, And those decisions, because... It's six of one, half dozen of the other. They feel like hard ones, but in reality, they aren't. Um, because if it's so much uh, on, an unbalanced decision, 
you can go either way and you'll end up feeling pretty good about it. So there's a, a concept discussed in, I believe it was How We Know What, what Isn't So, that I have to bring up because it just cracks me up so much. We're all familiar with the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief. That has been, you know, dogma for years. Your research more or less finds that it's pretty meaningless and there is no data that backs it up. Is, am I overstating that or is that a fair assessment of that? Um, I talk about that in the book in the same chapter that I talk about the hot hand. And mm -hmm. both of them are a reflection of the fact that um, we tend to see more patterns in the world than are actually there. Um, we've got this incredible pattern detection machinery in our heads and it goes out and finds patterns uh, but no system is perfect and so it overshoots sometimes and so we see faces and clouds and a man on the moon and canals on mars that aren't there um, and the hot hand uh, is you are know, seeing more streakiness than is really there is another manifestation of that psychologists are very fond of stage theories, that we go through these systematic stages to take us from the starting point to the end point. Kubler-Ross's is just one of them. And it I'm not saying it's random. That is to say people willy-nilly go through all sorts of stages at different times. Maybe there is some order there. But certainly there's less than people. People are complicated and they react in all sorts of different ways. And there is uh, a lot of research on people's reactions to grief, not so much about in reactions to their own death, although there's research on that too. Um, and people are all over the map. Uh, some people, the most common pattern, of course, is you're devastated initially, and mm -hmm. then you get over it. And um, But many people never get over it, and the world treats them badly. Like, what's wrong with you? I heard it's supposed to take about a year, and you seem to have... You, you seem to still be troubled by this. We're adding an extra burden onto those people. Some people aren't troubled right to be, from the beginning, and that can seem perverse. Wait, you just lost a child. What, what's wrong with you that you didn't feel that way? Well, that, that happens. Um, and the problem with a firm belief in stage theories is that they take on this normative stance. This is what you should do. In fact, there are certain practitioners. It sounds like I'm making this up. But it's uh, and I wish I were. Um, but there's a practitioner's manual for nurses that refers to people who don't go through Kubler-Ross's five stages in the order specified as pathological dyers. Uh, and just think how insidious that is. You've gotten the worst news you could possibly get that your life here is, is, you don't have much time left on earth. You've got to deal with that. And now in addition to that, you have to deal with the fact that the people presumably there to help you think that you aren't doing it right. Uh, it's just adding a horrible injury, uh, insult to an already terrible injury. And, and you link in one of your presentations, you link to the video of Homer Simpson going through the five stages, <laughs> yeah. which is absolutely hilarious. I'll, yeah. I'll add the... The link to this, I, I have to ask the related question, what sort of pushback did you get from the the establishment uh, in, in this area when you basically said, hey, the data doesn't really support the classic Kubler-Ross five stages as much as we think it does? 
compared to the amount of pushback I got on the hot hand, hardly any at all. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Uh, well, basketball is serious. <laughs> dying. <laughs> hey, you know, we can't really uh, pay much attention to that. So so let me ask you the question about, um, about the basketball hot hand issue. Uh, you mentioned there's some new evidence that perhaps moderates a little bit. Uh, I know when you first came out with it, uh, everybody from Red Auerbach to whoever uh, weighed in on it. What was some of the crazier pushback you got on this, and how accurate do you think uh, the original assessment is? Um, well, I wouldn't say any of the uh, pushback is crazy. It was it was very firm, and you know I understand that. And um, be, again, be, precisely because it's such a compelling phenomenon when you're out there in the heat of the game and you've made several shots in a row, um, and then you hear about these psychologists, statisticians doing some analysis, it's easy to um, just, ah, that, that can't be, and just dismiss it. Um, and they're very dismissive uh, that, oh, what do they know? They're a bunch of psychologists. Well, um, psychologists play basketball too, and, uh, and um, you know, maybe we wouldn't have the hot hand as much as a, a more skilled player, but we do have it. And um, so, it wasn't crazy, but it was pretty um, dismissive. And again, with respect to our initial hypothesis, are people overestimating any streakiness that might be there? That The answer to that is very clear. In fact, we're running additional studies right now where um, we have people shoot for us um, and they identify. Just tell us when you're hot. Um, and then afterwards we say, you know, you said you were hot. Uh, some number of times. You didn't say that some number of times. What percentage of the shots do you think you made after you said you were hot versus uh, the times when you didn't say that? And the overestimation is staggering. They, they, you know, We know what percentage of shots they made when they said they were hot, and they're wildly overestimating that. They're modestly underestimating how well they did when they said they weren't hot. So again, a departure between uh, belief and reality. So, so let me not look for confirming data on, on the thesis uh, that there was a lot of pushback and ask, did anybody at either the professional or college level get back to you and say, I want to adapt the data of the non-hot hand. Here's how we think it could affect our player rotation or our game strategy. Did you ever hear anybody who said, as hard as this might be to believe, we think you're accurate and here's how it's going to change our coaching or playing strategy. Um, I, you know, I've talked to a, a lot of coaches who will say, you know, one thing I have taken from that is that it reinforces really what my job is, which is to um, to get my team the best shots. And uh, I used to factor in how hot someone is. Now I'm going to factor that in less. It's really getting the ball in the hands of my best players on the best spots of the floor. And so it's it's reinforcing an alternative belief that they already have more than um, trying to get them to extinguish this other belief. So there's a ton of other biases I wanted to go over, the spotlight effect, the there's, there's just a run of stuff, but I have to get to my favorite questions. Um, these are the standard questions we ask all of our guests. Ah, okay. Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about your background. I'm the uh, first person in my family to go to college. That mm -hmm. could sound like, oh, that's a bad thing. Um, I feel I've 
been studying gratitude a lot, and I think part of it stems from having grown up in an amazing part of the world at an amazing time. Uh, that is Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley. It's just a great place. It's pretty egalitarian world. Those of us whose parents didn't go to college mingled with those who did, and you never felt like you were part of a lower caste as a result of that. Um, and obviously the weather there was sensational. You've got the beaches very close, Yosemite Valley very close. It was just an incredible place to have grown up. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Um, I had the great pleasure of going to Stanford University, the number one psychology department then and now uh, for a long time. It's, it's had that ranking um, at a great time. It was the height of the cognitive revolution in psychology. There's a lot of very exciting things happening, uh, which is why I chose to go there. And then there were these surprising things. Uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman were visiting there my very first year and started talking about this stuff I hadn't heard of that just seemed so compelling. It was sort of the, the dawn of the revolution in judgment and decision making. And it was just a very heady time. And they were generous with their time. Uh, my advisors, Mark Lepper and Lee Ross, two incredibly insightful psychologists, uh, were very helpful. So it was just a, felt like being in Wittgenstein's uh, Vienna. It was just a great place at a great time with uh, terrific people and terrifically giving people. So let me diverge from my normal questions and ask you two things about this. First, you write that you were originally planning on going to law school until you happened to see Tversky and Kahneman uh, at school. Did Did you really completely shift your career plans based on uh, that? No, not not quite. Those are there's those two components are true, but they're uh, melded together. That is to say, I went to college. Again, I was the first person in my family to go to college, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I uh, kind of liked to argue with people, and I thought that would be a good uh, field, uh, the law. And But there's there's no pre-law. You can take anything as right. a pre-law person. And so uh, I took a bunch of stuff and uh, some of them psychology courses, liked them, took another, like that, took another. And then suddenly it dawned on me, hey, I seem to like this psychology stuff. Can I make a career out of this? And I uh, took a year off after undergraduate to sort of do I want to take that plunge and go to graduate school? And the answer was yes. And I'm re really glad uh, that the answer was yes. So one of the themes that comes up in all these conversations with people who have achieved either personal or financial success is surprisingly the role of luck and randomness in their careers. And I can't count how many people have said, you know, but for this one thing happening, my entire professional career, personal life, whatever, could have easily gone in a different direction. You referenced in, and again, I think it was uh, uh, the why smart people make big money mistakes, the experience of, of seeing Tversky and Kahneman at Stanford. Am I over reading too much into that? Was that a big deal or was that just, hmm, this is really interesting and I want to stay with, uh, with psychology? 
I may be put. I may be yeah. reading too much into it. No, you're not. I mean, it's uh, well. I'll tell an embarrassing story about myself, which is uh, I go to Stanford. It's chock full of these famous people: Walter Michel of the Marshmallow Test, Gordon Bauer, a giant in the cognitive revolution. The people I plan to study with: Mark Lepper, Lee Ross, um, and Lee Ross ran a seminar on an introduction to the faculty. Um, each week, he'd bring in two other members of the faculty. We'd read what, their papers and find out what's going on there uh, among the, the faculty. Great way to start a program. Um, and in the first organizational meeting, Lee says, okay, that's what we're going to do. But the first week, we've got these visitors here, uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, um, and so we're going to start with them. And internally, I say to myself, ah, why these guys? Why can't I, I want to hear from the famous people? Because my undergraduate education was such I hadn't heard of them, and I'm now embarrassed by that. Um, but at least, and they they um, had us read the the now epic uh, 1974 paper in Science on heuristics and biases. And uh, so it's an embarrassing story that I would say, um, gee, when are we going to hear from the famous people? But <laughs> one thing I can say in my defense, at least, one thing that makes me feel better is at least I recognized when we read that paper, hey, man, this is, this is really great stuff. Um, and, and that changed what I planned to do in graduate school. Huh, that's fascinating. Tell us about some of your favorite books. Oh, man, there's so many great books. Um, Give us three. Uh, well, I'll give you a category for one. Anything that Ian McEwan writes is is just brilliant, and and um, you know it's 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 fiction, but it's fiction that touches on, uh, and it's fiction that touches on so many different areas of life and so many different themes. But some of it having to do very related to judgment and decision making and game theory. The beginning, the opening scene to his novel Enduring Love, it's a brilliant fictional depiction of game theory. It's all you need to know about game theory happens in that first very riveting uh, scene. So anything by Ian McEwan, uh, another moving out of fiction to, oh, and his kind of recent one, Nutshell, which is a, a little a bizarrely fascinating take on the Hamlet tale is, is brilliant. Um, uh, moving out of fiction to nonfiction, Guns, germs, and steel—just sure. the, the scope of it, and the—you know—he asks so many questions that it would never occur to me, at least, to ask, and uh, and then bring some interesting analysis to bear on them. Some of them convincing, some of them less so. But the ambitiousness of it and the questions asked are just, uh, just uh, terrific. Um, and you know, we started with Kahneman Tversky, and so it, it it feels right to say thinking fast and slow is chock full of wisdom and uh, just a brilliant uh, explication of all the research in this area. With uh, Danny Kahneman's just gift for putting things just right. Uh, I love that book. It, it was tremendous. Um, you work with a lot of students and a lot of millennials. What sort of advice would you give someone who is interested in psychology as a career? A bit of a complicated answer to that question. Mm -hmm. That is to say, people are often taught, oh, just follow your passion and so yep. on. And I, I chafe at that a little bit because I know a lot of kids, it makes a lot of kids feel bad because they think, oh, I don't have a passion. And then the problem is finding it. And it's okay to not have a passion. It's okay to be a person who 
does a variety of different jobs. And, you know, you can be a good person and live a good life as just be a taxpayer, be someone who's a good neighbor and so on. You don't have to to have a great passion and be a giant success. So I, I want to put that out there because I firmly believe that because the advice I'm going to give it could sound like, oh, you're recommending that and I'm not, which is um, just do stuff. Uh, do what's engaging to you. Take, take you know, um, if you're a student, don't worry so much about uh, getting your undergraduate business major so you can go right away into a job. Um, because if you do that you, and it's a job you like, they're probably going to want you to get your MBA anyway and you're going to relearn that stuff. Um, you never know what you're going to draw upon in your life. So take the kinds of courses, do the kinds of things that you're really engaged in. Push yourself a little bit. Um, that's what I would say. You know, the world changes so quickly you can't anticipate what the skills of the marketplace are going to be with that much accuracy. So just keep building your your intellectual capital, and don't worry so much about the outcome. And our final question, what is it that you know about psychology today that you wish you knew 30-plus years ago when you were first starting out? Yeah, great question and a simple answer to it. Uh, I knew this a lot in psychology, but I kept it sort of walled off there um, and didn't appreciate its breadth, which is an idea often attributed to Kurt Lewin, which is uh, when we're trying to change behavior, other people's are our own, we often try to do it by increasing motivation, psych people up, hire motivational speakers to get the sales force charged up and so on. And there are times in which that is helpful. When, motiva when motivation's the problem, getting more motivation is great. But oftentimes, that's not the problem. People are perfectly well motivated and they just can't figure out how to translate their strong motivations into effective action. And Lewin's idea, a very simple one, is when that's the case, don't try to push people more, figure out what's preventing them and take away those blockages. And uh, behavioral economists have been using that a lot, uh, to, uh, exemplified best in the Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein book, Nudge. Mm -hmm. uh, figure out what's preventing this and uh, rearrange the environment a little bit that makes the behavior easier. You want more of this? Make it a little bit easier. And I think if, um, if I knew that uh, sooner, I would be more effective in you know, consulting on political campaigns or helping people in their personal lives as well. That, that's absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Professor Tom Gilovich of Cornell University. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 180 or so such conversations that we've had. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put this podcast together each week. Taylor Riggs is our booker, Michael Batnick is my head of research, and Medina Parwaner is our audio engineer slash producer. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.